0: Trade Bites, Bites. Bites. the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex. And hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, BorderLex. Trade Bytes is the podcast series that gets up close and personal with the parts of international trade policy that others shy away from. And in this episode, we're shining a spotlight on one of the big questions in international trade at the moment. To put it in very simple terms, what are the factors that determine where stuff gets sold to? Over the past 40 years or so, exporters have got used to the idea that the whole world is their marketplace a notion which has been encouraged by moves by governments around the world to reduce tariffs and other barriers to trade. But with global pandemics, trade wars, fuel crises and other inconvenient things having proliferated over the past few years, could it be that that process of globalisation might be moving into reverse? Increasingly, the buzzword on everyone's lips, or at least everyone who gets excited about trade policy, is nearshoring. Now, this is the idea that in today's increasingly problematic global trading environment, you might be better off buying and selling in markets which are nearer by and hence less fraught with risk. But is this phenomenon actually happening? And if it is, how prevalent is it and what's causing it? Would it actually be of benefit if we had generally shorter supply chains? Or should we be worried about the possible economic consequences of a value chain which is more insular. Now these are complex questions, but the good news is that we have a team of experts on Trade bites today who could put everything into sharp focus. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Alessandro Borin, an economist in the Emerging Markets and World Trade Division of the Bank of Italy. It's a pleasure to welcome Professor Maria Savona, Professor of Economics of Innovation at the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex and full professor at the Department of Economics and Finance at LUIS in Rome. And I'm joined too by Dr. Camilla Jensen, lecturer in international public economics at Roskilde University in Denmark, and senior research fellow in international trade at the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex. Many thanks to all of you for being with us today. Alessandro, if I could start with you, how would you define nearshoring and just why has this become such a buzzword over the past few years?
1: Reassuring is a word that's became very popular in the last few months, as you said, especially after the pandemic, and were related to the recovery after the pandemic. And the idea is that, as compared to before, when firms used to produce very far away or at least perform some tasks very far away, given the problems in uh, supplying inputs from abroad, especially from a very far location, it would be more convenient to produce more close to home, so to reshore at home or, or to relocate part of their production or their supply chains close to their domestic market.
2: May I also add a little bit of nuances to the concept of near shoring? I think we can distinguish, I mean, in, in very simple terms, the two different perspectives in trying to assess quantitatively this phenomenon of near shoring. So basically, we look at this phenomenon from an input sourcing perspective, which means that we're looking where really value chains in a particular country and industry in each region, and I mean macro regions such as Europe, Asia-Pacific, or Northern and Latin America, where they draw value-added contribution from. So ideally, whether they rely on input sources coming from within the region or whether coming from outside the region so far away but so this is basically if the within region input source is higher then we talk about near shoring which is what chris was mentioning earlier so basically if i have an italian industry i basically input source stuff from germany rather than vietnam right but we also need to take into account the sort of output destination perspective so in other words we should look at not only where global value chains in each region draw value-added contribution from, but also where a global value chain contributes to value chain articulated, so in terms of output destination, which I think is the other dimension that is usually less explored in this phenomenon of me assuring. In other words, I can input source from within my region, but still... Rely on extra region final demand to sell my products. This phenomenon of me assuring it doesn't really represent a deceleration of globalization or deglobalization the way it has been depicted.
0: How globally connected are the value chains which create the goods that we consume? And why and and how did they get
3: that way? I think it's hard to come with generalizations because value chains differ so much by industry. So we could have some industries that are very capital intensive such as automobiles, and also very dependent on these interconnections between production and innovation and these user-producer relations. So these kind of industries are prone to follow other kinds of patterns, I would think, that then industries that are very labor intensive as Maria and Alessandro has also been talking about. So I suspect that we would see maybe different patterns, and all depends also on the kind of value chain. And then, of course, also from the policy angle, we see a little bit different responses across regions. And I actually thought, That could also be interesting to hear Alessandro and Maria about their perspective on the differences that there could be in value chains across, for example, the response of Europe and the U.S.
0: Yeah, this is a good question, actually, because presumably the bigger your internal market, the less need you have to kind of go shopping elsewhere, if I can put it that way.
2: Yes, in response to Camilla's question. Thank you, Camilla. I think it's a spot on consideration about the determinants of the latest trends in terms of near shoring. Now, in terms of findings, what we find is basically that Europe vis-à-vis other macro areas in the world, such as the Asia-Pacific or Northern and Latin America, Europe has a very peculiar model or latest trends of reconfiguration of these global value chains. In other words, if we look in terms of near shoring, so from the input perspective, we find that Europe has recently, near rely on input sourcing from within Europe whereas it has recently increased relying of extra Europe final demand when it comes to contribute to value chain in terms of output. destination. So in other words, Europe is sourcing inputs from within Europe, but it sells product to outside Europe. So this is a very peculiar trend, which is much more market than, for example, the countries in the Asia-Pacific area which are also more or less tend to rely on within region final demand for their global value chains. So we have a sort of reconfiguration of the global trade that sees Europe relying more on their inputs, maybe in terms of higher competitiveness of the input sources or more relying on high-tech intermediate inputs, whereas it needs to sell abroad <laughs> in putting in a very simple terms and this is really changing the balance in, in global trade it, it means that europe relies on a bit less final demand within europe And so possibly my question to Alessandro would be, is this model sustainable in the long term? In other words, we look at a very European global value chains relying on European input, but relying also on final demand coming from Asia-Pacific. Do you think it is sustainable? We have to
1: distinguish when we're talking about regional versus global integration We have to distinguish between levels and the dynamics. Uh, Of course, the EU markets or Europe, more in general, including the UK and also other Eastern countries or Turkey, that is uh, closely related, uh, is very integrated. Europe is much more regional as compared to other areas that, like Asia Pacific or North America, that are more in the middle. And then we have more like developing countries in Africa, South America. And Southeast, uh, that are more like uh, uh, global integrated, because uh, also they are basically supplier of raw materials inputs that are used everywhere. This also related to some statistical uh, issue. Europe is made of a lot of relatively small countries as compared to China or the US. So within-country trade is not reported as a GVC or value chain related in this case, but uh, seems like more GVC-related in the case of Europe. I think that the elephant in the room in in this debate uh, is really the role of China, both uh, in the phase of integration during the 90s and early 2000s of China within these global production networks, uh, and more recently in the transformation of China. We have to think to the particular way in which China first integrated into the production networks. In a very peculiar way, as through also the special economic zones, China used to assemble input supply from abroad, basically from Europe, from the U.S. and so on, and selling final products to all over the world. As China started to perform more sophisticated tasks to integrate upstream uh, and at the same time to have a larger consumer market. So, so it changed uh, probably the pattern of trade given its dimension also. So maybe relying less on foreign inputs, also from um, European inputs. Uh, so there is this uh, rebalancing. But at the same time, it becomes more relevant uh, as a final destination for final products. This dynamic that is also influence our indicator of globalization. So we saw some flattening of the GBC related trade during the last years. But if we disentangle geographically the different contributions, I think that China takes the lion's share of this solution.
0: There are a number of trade policy initiatives which governments are talking about at the moment, which might perhaps accelerate this trend towards nearshoring. For example, the heightened focus on auditing the environmental credentials or the labor credentials of supplier countries. You've got the EU and the US both considering CHIPS acts to sort of give them more control over supplies of semiconductors and so on. So do you think that is making or could potentially make in the future a difference to to patterns of trade and, and the decisions that companies make on where they buy and sell? Camilla, what's your view on that?
3: One issue is also about the timing, for example, how new is this phenomena? of reshuffling international trade. And and there I would mention that I think it's quite interesting that in uh, Geneva they have made this Global Trade Alert database and it was initially initiated by the University of St. Gallen, I think. And uh, initially it was a response to all this new protectionism that came just in the backwater of the global financial crisis. So this database also suggests that, for example, in relation to China that Alessandro mentioned, as the elephant in the room because many policies have maybe targeted China specifically or in a bigger group of countries. So there actually, we think that there has been an escalation also after populism, maybe with Brexit and Trump. But when we go back in time, Interestingly enough, maybe this is something that dates back longer than we think, also back to 2008. And then in terms of like what industries and and countries that have been active and in particular, maybe against China, definitely the U.S. has been much more active or been leading. And of course, we are not so surprised about that. The other question is maybe more what is the result of all these new trade policies? And as you mentioned, ships, uh, export controls, and then also more general protection protectionist policies. And and there we find that in some industries, there is some adjustment. But for example, I could take out a particular case of solar panels that I've been studying a lot. And there we see that there's some change in trade patterns, but it's not so much nearshoring as it's maybe more in, in this particular industry, it was more like fire shoring. So there was an adjustment. So there was a change of location of production from China To other Asian countries. So in that particular case, for example, even though there has been a lot of trade policies that have tried to harm countries where there has been a lot of outsourcing to previously, there's not much impact in the end. And I think that also has a lot to do with the fact that the multinational firms' policies and organization of global value chains is really long-term. So We have to continue to consult this question over the the next five to 10 years are maybe going to be more interesting in that perspective.
0: Now, one thing that trade policy experts are extremely good at doing is inventing new words. And we've already talked about near and far shoring. There's also a lot of talk about friend-shoring, this idea that you do business with friendly, reliable countries which have similar political values to yourself. And uh, China's inevitably cropped up already in this conversation so far. Maria, do you see that that trend towards doing business or or avoiding doing business with the more politically volatile countries. Do you see that trend actually happening on the ground? and Do you think it will intensify as time goes on?
2: Well, that's an interesting question, especially when you pose it to economists, Chris. But going back to the elephant in the room, so China accessing to WTO in 2001 and so on, the trends that I see, especially the one I was explaining for Europe, for the European model of near-shoring and fast-sharing, You know, there might be this, but then when we consider the sort of the destination side of this, this this is not happening. So in other words, even if you deal on an input side, you prefer to French shoring or near shoring. So when the near shoring becomes French shoring, then you wouldn't have any problem for sort of politically different countries to sell the product. So the far sharing is still there. So I'm just wondering whether this is not only a political set, it's just the dimension of final demand. So the capacity of countries, even politically far away, to absorb the European value added. And in this case, I think this distinction of, of the sort of geopolitical element is less important so you know what is really important is the the fact that as we find that these trends show that a european model is more dependent on outside europe final demand and this is something that i think is due for example to the fact that uh, in terms of policy that've been some form of austerity that have shrinked within Europe, the final demand, and therefore the fast-sharing trend has been going on the way we find it. So to respond to your question, as I said, I mean, it's intriguing that French shoring uh, might be working on the input side, but it doesn't seem to work on the output destination side. So probably this political element is not as important as you seem to imply.
1: Probably in... The Russian invasion of Ukraine was a major game-changer in this discussion from a political uh, point of view. And I think that both governments and firms uh, realize that we have to take into account also these geopolitical considerations. So I think that uh, maybe the problem will be to strike a balance between uh, the fact that to secure the productions, we need to have a more differentiated sourcing strategies uh, and to reduce concentrations on so some key inputs uh, and on the other side to avoid some kind of reinforcement of the protectionist tendencies that were already in places to so This could be a really uh, a way through which governments could um, pursue a protectionist uh, agenda under, under these and in, in a sense, I mean, um, remember that also the Trump tariffs uh, were imposed for uh, national security issues. So now I think that some national security issues, the pandemic shows that we need some kind of safe supply strategies that we have to think about very carefully to avoid widespread protections.
0: Is there any evidence that private sector businesses are, are sort of making their own near-shoring decisions independently of, of government policies. You know, For example, if they want to avoid financial risk or, or reputational risk, perhaps in the case of doing business with the slightly dodgier countries around the world. To what extent is this private sector driven? To what extent is this a question of government policy? I wonder if anyone has any views on that.
3: It depends a lot on the brand value of the companies. How strong is the brand value? If you are a very high-grade automobile producer, then the risk of actually the reputational risk of outsourcing to countries that customers maybe do not see as friendly in terms of fundamental consumer values is not so risky because it's kind of weighed off with the brand value. And I find that a little bit interesting. So it could maybe be more lower grade brands that have to follow this policy. But that's only what I've seen other researchers have found on this question, Chris.
0: As we move towards wrapping up our our podcast today, I'd like to ask a question to each of you in turn, which is a, a sort of looking towards the future a little bit. As far as you can see, are we heading for any kind of reversal of the trend towards globalization that we've seen in past decades or is it the case that the economic imperative to find the most profitable route to market wherever that might be is always going to prevail and you know are the risks of kind of market fragmentation that we sometimes hear about ha- have they been overstated i wonder what your views are alessandro can i start
1: with you it's very hard to reply to this kind of question because, you know, this, uh, as Camila and Maria also mentioned before, these are long uh, time trends uh, and uh, we have only a few observations uh, after the, this um, unprecedented shock. I think that at least in the next few years, there will not be a major retrenchment of, of global production networks. And uh, there are uh, some economic fundamentals behind this idea is that that there are very large fixed costs uh, in investing uh, and locating in some some places. There are very deep specializations uh, in key industries, uh, so it's very uh, difficult to relocate. uh, For instance, if we're talking about the semiconductor sector, we know all the difficulties and very large fixed costs to Reproduce and also to find the human highest uh, skill um, needed to reproduce this uh, production in different locations. And uh, what we we are seeing, but insofar as that firms uh, are using other type of strategies uh, to make uh, their uh, supply chains more resilient, uh, like uh, increasing inventory buffers, uh, or uh, trying to differentiate the input sources uh, as, as they can. So maybe having more suppliers for the same inputs. Uh, and we have little evidence of uh, major relocation of plants from a uh, country to another. But uh, there are for sure the uh, some... Uh, Factors uh, that will accelerate or will uh, uh, lead to a reconfiguration, as Maria said, uh, of the production networks. And I think that uh, these uh, geopolitical tensions uh, and uh, uh, protections or events like the trade war w- between China and the US or the Brexit uh, are potential elements that could lead to reconfiguration. In a recent study um, by some um, colleagues at the Bank of Italy, we saw that uh, the pandemic shock uh, were not related to any relocation decision of Italian multinationals, but for instance, uh, Brexit uh, or the trade war. Uh, even indirectly affected the these decisions. Maybe these are forces that can change deeply the production uh, network uh, configuration.
0: Camilla, do you see any big changes in trends on the immediate horizon?
3: I think, again, it's very hard to say generally. Maybe, for example, iron and steel, we see where there's also been a lot of politicking. I think that's one of the industries to look at more deeply because I think also with the new arrangements and especially also in terms of environmental policies that are also put on top of everything else that we are seeing right now huge reconfiguration is specifically in iron and steel and we will see the results but in other industries as I mentioned for example solar panels where we are so dependent already on the innovatory capacities, as Alessandro is also talking about. So actually, solar panels and semiconductors are very similar. In that sense, but just sunk in different places discussed. So, even though I would wish that we had more solar panel production in Europe and the US, because I think it's good for the trade climate that you have competition, that we don't have few countries monopolizing on so important goods as solar panels. So, even though I would hope that we had some reshuffling, I don't see it happening at all.
0: And Maria, a last word from you on this.
3: Thanks, Chris. Yeah, I was
2: reflecting upon this and I I think I'm going to borrow a concept that Richard Baldwin has put forward about global value chains and international fragmentation of production, which is first and second unbundling of globalization. He mentioned this when describing this increase in international fragmentation of production particularly due to different costs decreasing due to technical change and innovation, for instance, cost of transport and ICT. And now we might have a third unbundling of globalization. And this could probably be, well, first of all, a leveling of what before was the hyper-globalization. So it simply is not a deglobalization or deceleration of globalization. It's just something that is slowing down, but not necessarily Reducing. So, I don't think this trend is going to disappear. So, we we won't have deglobalization for the simple reason that technical change makes industries and countries all the more interconnected. And I think this is not going to stop. As I said since the beginning, I think what is going to change is. Global value chains are reconfiguring and this is going to be like the trends that we find and also geopolitical factors like the shocks that we've been facing over the very recent years. This is going to be something that is going to probably reconfigure la- rather than make disappear. <laughs> That's what it is. So I don't think in this context that protectionism or strategic autonomy are something that we should pursue. But we certainly have to look at, you know, how to make globalization a bit more inclusive.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much to all of you. Some very interesting insights there and some very perspicacious analysis of the trends that uh, we've been seeing. There, we have to wrap up our podcast today. So it just remains for me to thank my guests today, Alessandro Borin, to Maria Savona and to Camilla Jensen. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you very much to all of you for tuning in. So please do join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series, brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.